Friends, I want to encourage you to take your copy of the Scriptures this morning and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Have you ever noticed that not everything new is better? You know, I mean, not everything old is great either, you know, but not all things are, I mean, music. Is all the newer music better than the older music? Can I get a raise of hand, uh, yay or nay? <laughs> Some great songs written from your youth, I'm guessing. Yeah. And how about cars? Oh, yeah, they got air conditioning and stuff. I mean, but who needs power steering, right? <laughs> but that 76 Camaro I drove in high school was pretty nice. Not everything new is better, but my friend, some things are. And I guess it all depends on what you mean by better. Better is the key word in the book of Hebrews, my friends. Better. You recall our outline of the book of Hebrews. The writer, he is writing to these Jewish believers. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. The fulfillment of all that the prophets had spoken about, written about, hundreds of years before fulfilled in Jesus. And yet, because of persecution and difficulties, they were ready to walk away. And the argument of this writer, they were wanting to go back and go sleep in mommy's basement, my friends, to that which was familiar. And the writer says, why would you go back to something so inferior? You long for the old covenants. But let me tell you about the new covenants. And this morning in chapter 8, the writer here of the book of Hebrews gives us three reasons why the new covenant is superior to the old. Now, I know that there is a great deal of ignorance about the new covenant here. And, and when I say ignorance, I, I, the word means you don't know. Okay, I know that people use that word differently. But when you hear new covenant... What do you know about it? You're going to learn a whole lot more about it today, my friends. The old covenant refers to the Mosaic covenant. 613 laws and statutes for the nation of Israel. We do not live under the law. The law was given to Israel, not to the church. The new covenant was also given to Israel. And I want you to take your copy of the scriptures. Friends, don't just nod your head and keep staring at me. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. This is the first mention of the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 31, and easy to remember, it starts in verse 31. Jeremiah 31, 31. Now 
Jeremiah is a prophet to the nation of Israel. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He wrote the book of Lamentations. Jeremiah is the prophet that has watched the nation of Israel just degrade generation after generation and God's patience just running out. And they are about to go into captivity. They are about to be taken from their cities, from their homes, from their nation and taken captive to Babylon and Assyria. Jeremiah says, this will seem like the end of the world to you because everything you know will be destroyed. Remember this. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The word covenant here is not a word. We, we like to use the word contract. Covenant is not the same as a contract. The word covenant refers to a relationship in which one party establishes the terms which the other party can accept or reject. Here are the terms. Christ died for your sin and he rose from the dead. He promises for you forgiveness of sin, a new relationship with God, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God. Accept or reject. You have faced the very same thing, my friends, but you will note in the text here, this new covenant is offered to Israel and to the house of Judah. For this covenant, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, that's verse 32. On the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is how God sees himself in relationship with his people. He is not a distant God, my friends. For this covenant, this new covenant, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So now you know what the new covenant is. Three reasons why the new is better than the old. You will notice in verse 1 of chapter 8 in the book of Hebrews... The first reason that the new is better than the old. First and foremost, the new covenant 
is ministered by a superior high priest. And as the writer has made clear to us, that is Jesus. And how is it that Jesus is better than the other priests? Well, my friends, look at verse 1. Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. Now, he's referring here back to uh, chapter 7. This such a high priest is a reference back to chapter 7, 22 to 28, in which he is morally perfect. Uh, Hebrews 7, 26 reads, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. There's that such a. Such a high priest who is holy and innocent and unstained and separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Obviously, unlike the priests of the old covenant. You see, Jesus is morally superior. Holy and innocent and unstained. And I notice here at the end of verse 1, he is seated. You see that there? Now, in the, the point in which we are saying is this, we have such a high priest, one who is seated. And you know what it means when we read that someone is seated? When do you sit during the day when the work is done? You see, Jesus, as our high priest, has finished the work. And what is the work of a high priest anyway? Perhaps this will sound familiar to you. They offered sacrifices. We saw in chapter 7 that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice of himself in which he died for the sin of man once for all. Everyone who would be saved, every single sin that you have committed and will commit, Christ has died for that sin. Every last one of them. Jesus, unlike the other priests, every day covered in blood of sacrifices, my friends. Jesus finished his work. But you will notice, not only that he is seated, but where he is seated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And to sit at the right hand, my friends, is the place of honor. There he is, seated on the throne right next to the Father on the right hand. You know why the new covenant is better? We got a better priest. And it is Jesus. Holy, innocent, unstained, separated. Who has finished his work and seats at the right hand of God. Reason number two. That the new covenant is superior to the old. The new covenant is ministered in a superior place. Is Jesus in Jerusalem these days offering that sacrifice? No, he's not. But take a look at this, verse 2. He is a minister 
in the holy place. Jesus ministers in the original, not the copy. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, you know about the tabernacle, right? I think we even have a model of one here in the basement. Now, a tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent. And it was designed to be mobile. It was pre-temple, my friends, in which the whole camp of the nation of Israel was organized around. God was in the center, in the holies of holies. And we'll have to lay that out at some point, what that looked like, because it's significant. But my friends, this tabernacle is one in which the Lord set up, not man, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest to also have something to offer. But look at here in verse 4. This earthly temple was just a copy. It was a shadow of the real. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. We're talking about Jesus, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent... He was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mount. Moses saw the original, that which is in heaven. And this was merely a copy. And in the same way I could run downstairs and bring up this copy and you get to see it is like the real one. Thus, these things on earth are just shadows. And you know what a shadow is? Let's see. Let's find a light here. There we go. Can you see this shadow? Eh, it's not going to work. But you know what a shadow is? You, you know, you're making eagles and a big monster. <laughs> You've done that kind of stuff. And you see the shadow and you know that's not what's real. It just shows us that there is something that is real. Yeah. Well, my friends, the new covenant is ministered in a superior place, and that is heaven. And then we come to the third reason that the new covenant is better. Here in verse 6, the new covenant is founded on a better promise. You see, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the word testament is the same word as covenant, was impossible to fulfill. For this law could only be performed by those who were sinless. It was impossible. And that was the point, by the way. It was to paste a ruler to the wall and have you stand up against it and note that you do not measure up. You are lost. You are separated from God because of your sin and you need a Savior. 
But the new covenant is founded on a better promise. Look at verse 6. Where we see that the old was temporary. It existed for a time. But as it is, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is a much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. Since it is enacted on better promises. Now in Galatians chapter 3, Paul writes about this. Galatians 3 and verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, Paul writes, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. And so the law was this guardian, a schoolmaster to guide us, to point us to righteousness. And the very point of it should have enabled us to immediately recognize Jesus. For he is different, he is righteous, and he fulfills the Old Testament covenant. But the old was temporary. And people were unable to keep the old, as we just said. Look at verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming. We just read this in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. Wow. They did not keep my covenant. Hmm. The new covenant is founded on a better promise. The old was merely temporary. And people were unable to keep the old. But this new covenant is different. Look at verse 10. It has the promise not of to constantly put, hold like a mirror to show you the failures of your life every day. That was the Old Testament. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sin that demonstrated we could not keep it. But the new covenant is different. We have the promise of internal change. Look at verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. And after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. Not on tablets of stone, my friends. Not to be taught them, but to put these things in their minds and in their hearts. Internal motivation. How'd that happen? With the Holy Spirit of God, who convicts us of sin 
who rebukes our hearts when we know that we are wrong, that we are guilty. Internal motivation. And so, my friends, this new covenant that is different has the promise of internal change and the promise of a firm relationship with God. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. A universal knowledge of God, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And here is the part that we are all so familiar with and so in need of. The promise of the forgiveness for all sin. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sin no more. And my friends, the old is obsolete. Look at verse 13. And speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish. And those of you that are astute are saying, hey, wait, 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 wait a minute. What does this, uh, this new covenant have to do with the church? Everything we just read said Israel and Judah. Israel, the people of God, Israel. Will you do me a kind favor and turn with me to Matthew chapter 21 and 43? Matthew chapter 21 and 43. Now the fact that we are in Matthew 21 tells us that we are not at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. We are approaching the very end, and we know how it ends. In Matthew chapter 21 and verse 43, we read, Therefore I tell you, Jesus, to the Jews, the house of Israel and Judah, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush. He has just talked about the stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. It's a picture of himself that the nation of Israel has rejected their Messiah. And you will notice in verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. <laughs> Well, they got one thing right. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. No one thought him to be Messiah. Now, as long as we're in Matthew, turn a couple of chapters to verse 23. You see, what does this have to, what does this new covenant have to do with the church? When it was given to Israel, here is Jesus' pronouncement on the nation of Israel. 
and it is beautiful. Feel the passion in this. Matthew 23, verse 37, where Jesus says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And everyone reads that and says, What is he talking about? Jesus just said goodbye to the nation of Israel. And that they would not see him again until they come to faith in Jesus Christ. Anybody know when that's going to be? Has that happened yet? Has the nation of Israel come to faith in Jesus? Anyone? Anyone? No? Has anyone heard of the tribulation period? The Old Testament refers to it as the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel talks about the 70th week. The purpose of the tribulation is a focus on Israel. And it ends with their Messiah coming. And they see the one in whom they have pierced. And they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But not yet. Now in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. Now the church has begun chapter 2. Christ has died. He has risen from the dead. Disciples have scattered. And we need to meet some new fellows. You know Peter through the first 12 chapters in the book of Acts, but when we come to chapter 13, well, 12, 13, there's a new guy on the scene. His name is Paul. And what is the, what is the pattern of the gospel to the Jew first and then to the Gentile? But when we come to Acts chapter 13 in verse 42, Acts 13 in verse 42, Paul and Barnabas are ministering in Antioch. And this is just at the beginning of their ministry. Paul and Barnabas, as they, Paul and Barnabas, went out, the people, think of this, imagine this, the people begged them that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. You see, they, they would go to the Jews first, and where would they find the Jews? They'd say, <laughs> You know, on Sabbath, they would be gathered together, right? Oh, yes. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism were following Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And the next Sabbath, almost the whole city is gathered together to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. 
Which, by the way, was the point. Only the impact that the church ought to have in this world is to provoke Israel to jealousy of our relationship with God. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Yeah, let's make it personal, not about the truth. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. But since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And there is this transition not in leaving out Israel. My friends, one of the dangers of studying all of these things is to, to look at Israel and scowl and sneer. Welcome to uh, 1939, my friends, Germany. Yeah, Christ killers. There is a future for Israel. And we're going to study more about it in the year to come, my friends. But hear me when I say this. There is a transition. In Romans, in the book of Romans, hmm, chapter 11, Paul talking about the theodicy. What about the nation of Israel? Has God forsaken them? And the question and the answer is no. By no means. In Romans 11, Paul writes, So I asked, did they stumble, talking about the nation of Israel, in order that they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. And so Israel. Paul gives this, this image of a tree and how Gentiles have been grafted in. We are partakers of this covenant, my friends. In the same way that perhaps you bought a house. And you and your spouse, you went to the bank or the mortgage company. And you signed all the documents. And you have this contract with this lender. And yet there are other people living in the house. That's the church. Yes, the new covenant. And perhaps, perhaps you heard about this event in which Jesus took bread and blessed it and gave it to his disciples. And after he had supped, he took the cup and said, this is the, say it with me, new covenant in my blood. It began with his death. He died for our sin, just as the new covenant said. We receive the Spirit of God by believing in him, and we know the truth. My friends, the new is better than the old by yards and football fields and stadiums, my friends. And God offers you, let's make it personal, God offers you a new and superior relationship. And here are the terms. 
I die for your sin. I rise from the dead. I forgive your sins, past, present, future. I adopt you into my family. I have a home, a room built onto my father's. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go and prepare a house for you? And if I, yeah, I will return again. And what is your response? The only acceptable response, my friends, is to put your trust in Jesus Christ. To accept the offer by faith. 